Welcome to episode one of the Research Brief podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today is Dr. Joe Walther an Associate Professor of Engineering Education Research and the Founding Director of the Engineering Education Transformations Institute at the University of Georgia. Joe will be discussing qualifying qualitative research quality. It's a lot of Qs, so we call it Q3. So thank you, Joe, for being the inaugural guest for the first episode of Research Briefs. First, can you tell us a bit about how you came to be an engineering education researcher? Okay, I can do that. Um, hi. So um, I went to engineering school in Germany and um, got my degree in um, mechanical engineering. Um, and after that, my next um, step in the journey was um, Australia, where I did a PhD in engineering education research um, at the University of Queensland. And since 2008, I'm a faculty member in engineering education research here at UGA. Um, and as of the beginning of this year, um, the director of this Engineering Education Transformations Institute, ET, as we call it affectionately. Um, and this is really a, a sort of exciting new model for achieving impacts in engineering education through creating a community and shared capacity around um, the scholarship of teaching and learning that really reaches across our entire college. So we have a really active community of faculty, lecturers, staff in the college, students, that are really starting to begin to transform the cultures and practices in our programs and in our college. So that's a really exciting time here at UGA. So that just started up this year, is that correct? Um, yes, earlier this year. So the prep work goes back to um, sort of a year and a half of sort of building community and mapping um, interests and capacity. And the official launch date was the beginning of this year. Excellent, well, congratulations. And you're hiring more faculty too there at UGA, is that correct? Yes, yeah, we've just hired um, Nathaniel Hansu, who is starting as an assistant professor, um, and um, Dominic Mai is joining us from Germany in um, the spring after his visa is hopefully approved. And at the moment, looking for um, an associate director for educational innovation and impact, um, a really new, exciting role in the community for someone who wants to um, use the engineering education background to work with people, make change, build community, um, and have sort of widespread impact. So um, if there's anyone out there who's excited about that, um, send me an application. Yes, fabulous. So things are really happening there. I'm, I'm excited for you. Um, again, the, the name of your framework, which we're going to be calling Q3, is Qualifying Quantitative Research Quality. Qualifying and Qualitative Research Quality. Right. So this is all the cues. Right. Yeah. Did I say quantitative? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Qualifying <laughs> qualitative research quality. Um, that's a very important distinction. <laughs> um, could you explain the framework a little bit and what some of the key points are? Sure. So the big idea is really that it provides a coherent way of conceptualizing and talking about research quality that can reach across the many different interpretive um, methodologies that have been currently adopted in the engineering education research community. And the way we achieve this is to look at research quality really as a process um, that spans 
two sort of broadly defined phases that we call making data and handling data, sort of keep it open enough to account for differences in different methodological traditions. And this allows us to locate um, quality considerations in different parts of the research. So from the very early phases of um, thinking about and, and conceiving of a project, um, all the way through to the ultimate use and impact of the findings. So in addition to this process element of making and handling data, the second dimension of the framework defines six fundamental aspects of research quality or quality constructs that are applicable across a, a wide range of interpretive research traditions. Um, and those quality constructs are theoretical validation, communicative validation, procedural validation, pragmatic validation, ethical validation, and process reliability. Um, and I guess we'll be posting a link to a paper that um, describes some of those constructs in more detail. Yes, yes. Uh, the listeners can find that on our, our page, links to the paper and other information about Q3. Um, I know here at Purdue, people have been uh, very excited about it, and I was just in a preliminary defense a couple days ago where we were uh, really encouraging the student to be sure and read that, it's, that it was really very important. Um, so one of the things we say about the whole purpose of the podcast is to look at new theories, new methods, and new findings. And so I'm, I'll be very, very interested in asking about your motivation for creating Q3 um, and a bit about that story. Why did you think a new framework was uh, needed and, and then how did you go about creating this framework? Okay, so the, the idea of this really goes back to my dissertation research um, in, in engineering education. Um, and I was on this exciting journey from a mechanical engineering background into qualitative methodology and discovering that world um, over the course of those um, three years. And, but I didn't really find sort of a satisfying or coherent way to answer the question that I had is, why should I trust these results? Mm -hmm. um, and in the literature, there are a lot of suggestions and um, contexts that really draw on a, a broad range of intellectual traditions. Um, that speak to aspects of research quality called by different names, trustworthiness, validity, um, alternative criteria. And my initial drive was really to make coherent sense of these somewhat disparate conversations in the literature. Mm -hmm. And this um, first sort of attempt at synthesis was really the starting point for the, the framework later on. So you got this idea of reading things of like, wow, you know, there's something here that's really missing. I want to be able to uh, pull this together. And one of the things that I find particularly intriguing about engineering education research is that people like yourself with an engineering background are now approaching new things like, say, transferability and really looking at it in a different way. And I think that's really a contribution that engineering education research can make to the broader research community is to bring this different way of looking at things uh, to some research problems. Um, so you had this idea that there was something missing. Then what, how, how did you go about creating this framework then? How, what was the process of developing Q3? I know it was a long process. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it started, like I said, with um, a lot of reading um, of associated literature and really the desire to see a coherent picture in that. Um, and this went through multiple iterations. So, you know, initially you see a lot of connections and things map to each other because, you know, I guess everything is related, right? Um, but it took a long time to see something that was more sort of like the essence um, that was not just connecting the dots, but really seeing a new and clearer picture of, of what I was hoping to see. Um, the second aspect that I would say is crucial that it really co-evolved with my dissertation studies. So I was living those questions around the trustworthiness of the data and findings at the time. Mm -hmm. And whatever element of a framework that I would consider or come up with would have to stand up to the test that it needed to work with my study and would need to give me those answers that I was looking for and that trust in the in the findings that I was developing. And this sort of co-evolution of the framework and my own practice continued at um, my research, started my research program at UGA. So the ideas of this initial sort of framework became more than abstract words or the hypothetical mapping of similar constructs. It really became a way of thinking about and doing research and also discussing that with colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, so that lent a lot of um, clarity um, to my thinking because it was grounded in um, my practice and the practice of my colleagues. And then the next big step was um, to put this idea forward as my um, career proposal. So at that point, I was hopeful that other researchers would find this initial framework useful. Um, but I was also aware that there are a lot of great qualitative researchers in our field who have really sophisticated ways of thinking about and also promoting research quality in their own work. Um, some of those ways are explicit and sort of um, anchored in the particular methodologies that people are using. Um, and other um, practices and conceptions are probably more um, implicit and based on experience and wisdom of doing this for a long time. So similar to how that initial framework co-evolved with my dissertation study, um, I also wanted then this next stage of the developing this framework to really do justice to the conceptions and practices in the field. And this was where this idea for a more collaborative development of a framework came about. Mm -hmm. Now, could I um, ask you to go back a step? Um, I'm really intrigued, intrigued by your idea of seeing connections between different ideas. What did you use to help you see connections? Did you have sticky notes on a wall, a concept map, try to draw a graphic? Can you say a little bit about your process of, of how you built up this mental picture? Sure. So it was a little bit of a mix of all of the above. So um, I like visual things. So I had um, clustered post-it notes um, and using a, um, a large whiteboard um, in the office to, you know, try to, to map and relate some of those constructs. Um, and what I felt was helpful um, in this process is not just to have the, the terms, say, for quality criteria that are suggested in other um, fields of research, but also some sort of rich quotes from the articles that described some of that. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I had a, um, multiple iterations of having visuals around um, the terminal terminology as well as the quotes that then later on merged into a table when I was starting to see some more patterns that went beyond just m mapping of things. Um, and that table was sort of the the first version of the precursor of what uh, the framework later on looked like. Mm 
And another thing too, you said you were reading things. How did you decide what to read? That's always a question, you know, grad students ask us. Um, well, there is sort of the, the systematic process that we say that we all engage in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. that is that is true to some extent. So, um, you know, doing very systematic searches of literature with um, consideration of, you know, keywords and, and having consistency in that. But then there's also the, the reality of the more messy side of the sort of rabbit holes of references in the reference section and following these and um, getting off on tangents and getting lost in, you know, vast new bubbles of literature and then trying to come back to um, sort of a systematic process. So I think it's a it's a bit of a mix of both um, things that we can plan and have sort of a sense of keywords, but then also an expanding sense and, you know, and some randomness of what, what else we come across. What, were there a few key references that when you found them you were like wow this really gives me great insight into this process yeah there were a, a, a couple of um, references and I'm trying to bring up the the actual citation for that so it's a, a, a little slim book that I at some point checked out in the library um, that was talking about really from a sort of experiential um, researchers point of view about um, research quality mm -hmm. um, let me have a look with that um, so it was um, Kirk and Miller um, and it's from 1986 um, the title is reliability and validity in qualitative research so fairly unassuming um, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a neat account that was part philosophical discussion but also very very much related to concrete examples and you know the lived experience of of research quality and of doing qualitative research um, and I think that was sort of a, a, a really interesting inspiration for developing the framework mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so I'll, I'll take you back to I think where we we left off before I started interrupting you with other questions about the development so you have your your table created, um, which probably on your whiteboard somewhere, of what's going to be the precursor to two, three, uh, Q3. Uh, what, what happened next? Um, so after using that and you know, refining sort of the thinking and the language to use in our own work here at UGA, um, it was the next step was this um, putting forward as a proposal. And I spoke about the, the intention to also have a collaborative process of taking this to the next step that would be reflective of the practices and conceptions of the qualitative researchers in the field. So um, the idea was not to say, hey, I've developed this based on the literature and now you should go and use it, but making room for, um, you know, that there are explicit and implicit ways of thinking about and doing quality in, in, in this type of research that should be captured in, in the development of the framework. Mm -hmm. So the project was um, initially conceived to build capacity and social capital around research quality in the community. And in the process of that capture and distill um, those practices and preconceptions that um, people have um, into the next stage of the framework. So in collaboration with Nikki Sahatska here from UGA, who was a collaborator on this project, we. Um, organized a lot of different workshops from small to large, from an hour and a half to two days, from 
um, 12 people to 150 um, with relative novices and with expert qualitative researchers um, and engaged in discussions around the framework, its use, um, activities to um, try to apply it to people's own work and capturing some of the um, insights that came out of that. And in this process, the initial frameworks held up sort of fairly well in, in some ways, so it resonated with um, people and their own research practice. I guess we would call that pragmatic validation in the framework. Mm -hmm. But there was also a lot to be learned and some aspects to be added to it. So in those workshops and a couple of collaborative inquiry projects that grew out of the workshops, um, we formed groups that would explore the use of this framework um, in their own research practice. So in some cases, we spent two years um, in, a, in a smaller group of exploring the use, applying that, reflecting, um, and thinking about you know, ways of that needed to be expanded or changed. Um, and throughout these, these processes, we discovered uh, uh, sort of new layers of understanding of some of the, the things that were contained in the initial framework. So that was really interesting. So even us as facilitators of those workshops, I don't think we did one workshop where we did not have a new level of insight about, um, you know, essentially our own framework. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were also um, a couple of additions. So one of the major additions was this idea of ethical validation. Mm -hmm. that I guess was sort of floating about at the periphery of this initial idea, but not quite articulated. Um, and in one of those collaborative inquiry processes with Alice Pauly from Purdue, um, we really fleshed out this idea of ethical validation and um, in that process also transformed really the way that we think about our own research and the, the people involved in it. So mm -hmm. these were some exciting new pieces. And when did you feel ready to write about it and kind of present it as a framework for the community and in archival research? Um, sort of in, in the process when um, the framework seemed to be at least tested in our own practice here. So um, it was not, you know, pulling this together and having a, a table that looks neat, but after you know, you know, maybe two, three years of using it and 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 growing it and refining it. Um, that that sense of utility was something that I felt um, it was sort of ready to share at least in some version with the with the community. And in earlier conference presentations on some of that, I also um, had a, a sense of resonance and need from the community. So a lot of people would ask to um, whether I could share that with them. Um, so that encouraged. Uh, publication in a more archival venue as well. Mm -hmm. So you've already mentioned a bit about the uh, workshops that you gave and sharing it at conferences and, and being able to get input from the community. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say just about how Q3 has been received generally? Um, yeah, I can speak to that a little. So like I said, the, the workshops were a lot of fun um, to facilitate and to, to work with people and see the level of engagement and, and also some of the resonance that people perceive with their own work. Um, so we saw a lot of people who um, seemed to think it was really useful and we also saw some real breakthrough moments that people had and have been in touch with some participants um, for a long time later to um, for them to share with us their, their experience of using the framework. So there were some, some really cool experiences of that. 
And then there was a surprising thing that happened with um, the workshops we organized for novice um, interpretive researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that they found it very compelling um, and sort of surprisingly compelling because it's at some level dense and theoretical. Um, but what we realized from interacting with um, folks who were sort of at the cusp of wanting to get into um, qualitative research was that they found it uh, sort of neat and what we then called methodologically unencumbered way of getting into interpretive methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, so the framework starts very concretely with asking questions about the social reality that is under investigation of interests and builds from there questions that people can ask about do I actually capture this um, people's experiences and lived experiences of this reality? Do I do justice to that in my interpretation? Um, so it was a way of accessing um, interpretive methodology without having to read four philosophy and seven methods books first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, that way into the research through the framework persisted for um, those participants that we stayed in touch with for a longer period of time. So they were able to use that to plan their research, mm-hmm. um, to use it during the research, to do, um, to do the research, and then also to to write about and articulate aspects of quality in their in their work. So it was really a way in, but also could grow with researchers as their expertise grew. Um, so that made it really compelling for novices, and that was not something that I had had anticipated. Really, mm-hmm. excellent. And I guess there's also then, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, there's probably also some ambivalence. So we also hear about um, graduate courses that the framework is being used in and do have the suspicion that um, some or maybe even a lot of graduate students secretly hate us for it. (laughs) Yes, that can happen. (laughs) Um, So I have one uh, final question for you uh, today. You know, the purpose of the podcast is to allow people to get insights into creating new theories or frameworks or new methods and looking at new findings. So for people in that uh, position of people who are thinking about developing new frameworks in engineering education research, what advice would you have for those people? That's a good question. Um Maybe I'll start with, uh, um, I've heard it said recently, so I'm not claiming um, credit for that, but I've heard it said recently that frameworks are like toothbrushes, Mm. that everyone has one, but no one wants to use someone else's. (laughs) I like that. So given that um, sort of characteristic of framework, I'll maybe give three pieces of advice that I can think of um, when developing a framework. So the first would be... um, that a lot of things are related and can be mapped to each other, right? We've all had that experience and we've all done this, but that doesn't really mean it should be put together in a framework. Um, The real question for me is, does a framework provide real tangible clarity? So does it reveal this newer, clearer picture of the phenomenon or the, the thing that we're interested in? So just by things being related and, you know, that one can put them into a diagram and draw arrows between them doesn't mean it's a useful framework. Mm-hmm. The second that is sort of related to that is that I feel the real work of coming up with is not with coming up with a framework, but the real work is to make it work for the people you want to use it. 
Mm. Right. So even if it provides this new, clearer picture, you still need to get the work out, the word out, and work with people to use it. Mm-hmm. And and do you feel that your your workshops were really an important step in doing that? Yeah. So I think I feel like um, there was not a sense of, or there was a sense of co-creation mm-hmm. with this. And this is sort of related to, I guess, uh, the third point that I would make is that this process of making your framework work takes a lot of time. So we've done um, probably close to 30 workshops nationally and internationally on that. Um, but it can also be immensely rewarding. Mm-hmm. So this sense of co-creation is amazing. And also in the process, we got incredible insight into the research of the people we worked with collaboratively. Um, we got to know them in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have known them. Um, and the final framework or the, the way that it's used really became a shared product. And for that help, support and participation, um, that's what I'm really grateful for to the community and also wanted to thank all those um, people again for that. Mm-hmm. So it kind of became everybody's toothbrush in a way. Yeah, it's uh, that's maybe <laughs> a limit of that metaphor, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Well, Joe, thank you so much again for being our inaugural guest and um, telling us about the process of creating Q3. Um, I know that your story has inspired me, and I hope it inspires others to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. So again, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. To learn more about Joe Walther's Q3 framework or to find a transcript of this podcast, go to ruth.streveler at wordpress.com. Our theme music was composed by Patrick Vogt. Thanks, Patrick.